You're listening to the Benton Heights Presbyterian Church Podcast. We hope this message brings you encouragement and helps to build your faith in Jesus. We're glad you're here to listen to this message from Pastor Paul. Through this year, we are going through the entirety of the Gospel of John. And where we find ourselves today is in the last half of chapter 5, which is actually a continuation and conclusion of the story that we started last week. Let me catch you up to speed. There was a guy who had been, who had been an invalid for 38 years. Some of you have chronic pain or disability. You have an injury that you've yet to heal from. Some of you struggle mightily with pain and suffering. That would be this man's condition for a full 38 years of his life. We find him near the temple in Jerusalem. The temple, the place where God's presence was most prominent for the Jewish people. And Jesus arrives in Jerusalem, walks up to this man, looks him in the eye, and asks him this curious question. Do you want to get well? Do you want to be healed? The guy doesn't really answer the question. He more or less just kind of says why he can't get healed. But Jesus says to him, Take up your mat and walk. And in an instant, Jesus healed him, commanded him to pick up his mat and walk away. Doing that, he has to go through the the temple area, and it happens to be on the Sabbath, their day of worship. Back in the early part of the Bible, God did forbid that work would be done on the Sabbath so that people could focus on him. But the religious leaders created additional rules. One man-made rule was that no one can heal someone on the Sabbath. Another one was that you couldn't carry anything on the Sabbath. So when they reach this healed guy and they see him carrying his mat on the Sabbath, rather than being excited for him, they become critical. They approach him and they ask, why are you carrying your mat and how did you get healed? Jesus healed me and he he told me to carry my mat. So they automatically have two problems with Jesus. He healed this guy on the Sabbath and he commanded him to carry something on the Sabbath, but it gets worse. In a follow-up interview, or rather interrogation with Jesus, they were blown away to find that Jesus is comparing himself with God the Father, thereby making himself equal with God. And the text told us that from that moment on, they began to persecute him. He turned into the worst kind of critics trying to dismiss, disregard, even seek the death of Jesus. Let me define for you what a critic is so that we won't become one ourselves. A critic is someone who is always finding fault with others. Someone who is obsessed over details, that if folks don't do it your way, they're not doing it the right way. They're not doing it God's way because, of course, God prefers your way. That's exactly what's going on here. And they are critiquing God for not being godly enough. So what I want you to see is that you can love God. You can be serious. You can be devout. 
But if you have the heart of a critic, you're opposing him. Yet Jesus is trying to have a relationship with these people. But the problem is they are non-relational. They really don't want to engage him. They don't want to sit down to a meal with him. They don't even want to know him. They are just there to criticize him. Jesus is relational. Throughout the course of his ministry, religious people will continue to come against him. And these people are non-relational. And non-relational people can't have healthy relationships. So if that's you, your spouse wants to talk and you don't want to. They pursue you and you don't pursue them. They open up to you and you conceal from them. There's a disconnect. This is the situation between Jesus and these religious leaders. They're coming at Jesus with the heart of a critic. Jesus doesn't give up. He doesn't walk away because Jesus is awesome. And he's trying to prove to them, I'm God. Don't argue with me. Have a relationship with me. Now in the Bible... When a judgment is to be made, when a decision is to be rendered, it was required that two witnesses be brought in so you can corroborate the story, have the evidence, if you will. Well, that being said, Jesus is not going to bring in two witnesses to declare who he is. He's going to bring in five witnesses, and he's going to basically call them forth to testify to who he is. And look, I think this is amazingly humble of Jesus. If I were God, come to earth and just healed a guy and people showed up to criticize me, I would not want to give them the satisfaction of an explanation other than to say this, I'm God, I healed a guy because I can, that's all you need to know. Uh, yeah, I'll tell you what, you go heal somebody supernaturally, come back, we'll talk about it. Until then, I win. But Jesus isn't like me. (laughs) He's awesome. So here are the five witnesses that he brings forth. Number one, the first witness is God the Father. Think of this like a court scene. And Jesus calls to the stand, the first witness. And here's what Jesus says regarding himself. By myself, I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just, for I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. Everything Jesus does is in relation to God the Father. He says, I do what the Father tells me to do. I say what the Father tells me to say. I've come to do what the Father and I agree needed to be done. We're working together. He goes on and says, if I testify about myself, my testimony is not true. Jesus says, because here's what I know. Here's, I know what you're thinking. If I just tell you I'm God, you'll say, well, we need a little bit more evidence than just you saying that. How many of you have learned the hard way that just because somebody says something doesn't mean it's necessarily true? So Jesus starts with God the Father. 
But because he knows he's not going to believe, they're not going to believe him, he goes to two other witnesses, and then he'll circle back to God the Father. He says, there is another who testifies in my favor, and I know that his testimony about me is true. So now the second witness comes to take the stand. He says, you have sent to John. That's John the Baptist that we talked about a few weeks ago. You sent to John, and he testified to the truth. Not that I accept human testimony, but I mention it, that you may be saved. He's talking to religious people, and these religious people are not saved. They're moral people, but they're not saved. They're spiritual people. They're devout people, but they're not saved. Some of you are moral. Some of you are spiritual. Some of you are religious. You're devout, and you're not saved. You're not saved by God. You're not saved from God. You're living a spiritual, moral, independent life, disconnected from God, and that was these people. Look, they knew the language of Hebrew. They knew the Old Testament. They met every Sabbath. They tithed 10%. They sought to do everything God said. And when God showed up, they rejected him because they didn't have a relationship with him. The problem with these people is they think they don't need to be saved. They thought they were fine. For some of you, that's your problem. I don't need to be saved. God grades on a curve. I'm better than most people. I'll be fine. Your sin is pride, and pride is the worst sin of all. Jesus goes on. John, John the Baptist, was a lamp that burned and gave light, and you chose for a time to enjoy his light. See, that. They knew the Old Testament so well. They knew that the last book of the Old Testament promised that there was one who was coming that was the Messiah, the Savior. And preceding his coming was a prophet, a messenger, a preparer of the way. So from that promise in Malachi to the coming of Jesus, there was 400 years of silence. No prophet spoke, no book of the Bible written. They were all awaiting the Lord's coming. And then it was fulfilled. John the Baptist came to prepare the way for the coming of the Messiah, the Savior, the Lord. His name is Jesus. And Jesus says, you know what? John showed up. He showed up in history and he was like a lamp lighting a path toward a destination. John was powerful in speech, filled with the Holy Spirit, Yet his whole point to his ministry was to illuminate a path to Jesus. At this point, John has stepped off the, the, the stage of, of ministry, public ministry. He's probably in prison. John was one who gathered a lot of people, but then handed them over to Jesus. And at this point, he's been arrested. He'll be beheaded because he has something to say against politicians. And Jesus says, you appreciated John? Well, if you appreciated John, you should love me because John prepared you for me. 
Jesus moves on to his third witness. It's his works. He says, I have testimony weightier than that of John. Now, that's a big statement. John is a popular guy filled with the Holy Spirit. And Jesus says, I am an authority over John. For the works that the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I am doing testify that the Father has sent me. Here's what Jesus is saying. You don't like my words? Then watch my works. If you struggle with what I say, follow me around and watch what I do. Jesus is saying, I do the things that only God can do. What had he just done? He just healed a guy who had been an invalid for 38 years. That should count for something. Jesus does what only God can do. You see, when Jesus is around, deaf people hear, blind people see, lame people run, and on three occasions in the gospel, dead people get up. All of that is fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. In Isaiah chapter 35, 700 years before Jesus walked the earth, this promise came. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. The promise was given. That when Jesus shows up, he's going to do the supernatural. He's going to bring healing and life where there's been brokenness and death. When Jesus shows up, people are changed. When Jesus shows up, things are changed. Jesus is saying, look at what's happening. How in the world can you possibly attribute this work to anyone other than God? Here's his point. He is shifting the burden of proof. The religious leaders come to him and say, prove it. Prove that you are who you say you are. And Jesus says, I already have. Why don't you seek to defend your case? I've presented mine. You see, the burden of proof is on those who reject Jesus. So back to the first witness, God the Father, the highest authority there is. The Father who sent me has himself testified concerning me. And this is what he tells them. You have never heard his voice. He's saying, God doesn't speak to you. God the Father spoke audibly, publicly at Jesus' baptism and again at his transfiguration. But if you remember at Jesus' baptism, the entire Trinity was there. There was Jesus, the Son, at his baptism, God the Holy Spirit comes down in the form of a dove, and God the Father speaks from heaven, and he says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Jesus is the son of God. All who were present heard it. You've never heard his voice, he says, nor seen his form. You've never been in his presence. He says, where do you think I came from? <laughs> I came down from his presence. Nor does his word dwell in you. For you do not believe the one he sent. 
These people with whom he is debating and discussing, did they know the Old Testament? Yes or no? Yes. All of these religious leaders would have learned Hebrew and memorized huge portions of the Old Testament. And Jesus is saying, the word of God is not in you. It's not part of you. It's not changing you. For you, it's only information. It's not transformation. The first witness is God the Father. The second is John the Baptist. The third witness are Jesus' own works. Remember, he only needed to provide two witnesses. Well, Jesus is good and convincing and truthful. He's going to add some more. The next one is going to consume a little bit more of our time. The fourth witness is Scripture. It's the Word of God itself. He says this to them. You study the Scriptures diligently. All right, is there anything wrong with that? No, that's not a bad thing. He's not rebuking them for reading the Bible. Here's the problem. You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. Let me tell you, this book does not save you. It reveals Jesus, and Jesus saves you. We love the Bible because it tells us about Jesus, our Savior. But there are people who can read this book just like it were any other book and it not change them because it's about a relationship with Jesus. The goal of God's word is to get you to him. This book alone cannot save you. Only Jesus can save you. And he says, these are the very scriptures that testify about me. So what's the Bible all about? It's all about Jesus. Yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Jesus says, you read the Bible. The whole point of the Bible is to get you to have a relationship with me. I show up and you use the Bible to argue with me. Now, before we judge these people... How many of us have read a passage of scripture and said, I'm not doing that? <laughs> I can't forgive them. I can't believe that. I'm not going to obey. We argue with the word of God all the time. And sometimes we think because we're in the word, the word is in us. That's not necessarily the case. Jesus continues, I do not accept glory from human beings. What he's saying is, you guys are, living, are doing glory for yourselves or for one another. That ultimately, if you're living for the approval of another person, you're not living to the glory of God. And he says, but I know you. I know that you do not have the love of God in your hearts. That's a big statement. People may say, you don't know my heart. Jesus can say, I do. You can't judge me. Jesus would say, I will. They do not have the word of God in their hearts. They may have God's word in their mind, but they do not have the love of God in their heart. Do you love God? Well, I believe in him. Do you love him? 
They have the word of God in their minds, but they don't have the love of God in their hearts. So when God shows up, they don't want a relationship with him. I have come in my father's name and you do not accept me. Well, we love God. We don't love you. And Jesus would say, but I was sent by him. You reject me, you reject him. But if someone else comes in his own name, you will accept him. Another preacher, another teacher, some author, some musician. Oh, you're fine with them. You'll buy their books and their T-shirts. You'll click like on their Facebook account. You'll show up early for their concert. You are fine with them. You don't mind celebrating. You just don't have any enthusiasm for me. Verse 44, how can you believe since you accept glory from one another, but you do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? How many of you are 40 and older? Okay, yeah, I'm, I'm just over. According to the Bible, we're the older people. Older people, what do we care most about? Retirement capital. <laughs> we want our money to outlast our life. What do the under 40 care most about? Social capital, social media, likes, approval, trending. Regardless of which category you're in, it's about living for our own glory or the glory of one another. There's one relationship that should be your most important. That's your relationship with the Lord. Other relationships aren't unimportant, they're just of secondary importance. And if any of those relationships harm your relationship with the Lord, you need first to be loyal to him. Bottom line of all this, Jesus is saying that the whole point of the Bible is that it's about him. We are a Bible-believing church. But for some of us, we take the Bible so seriously that we can also take ourselves too seriously. The key is to take the Bible seriously, but not ourselves. The problem with these people that were encountering Jesus is that they took themselves too seriously. They thought they were being biblical. Now, you got to know that they didn't start off with the goal of opposing God. They started off with the goal of being biblical, but they weren't relational. So when God shows up, they oppose him. I want us to be careful that we will be biblical like Jesus, not his critics. That our goal is to build people up with the word of God, not tear them down with the word of God. So these people were not seeking to win other people over. They were just seeking to use the word of God as a place to win their arguments. And point number two, the whole Bible is about Jesus. You are, you are not understanding the Bible correctly if you end up not having a loving relationship with Jesus. So the Bible is for you, but it's not about you. It's about him. Here's what I want for you. 
I want you to love the scriptures. I want you to love the Jesus in the scriptures. I want you to be filled with God, the Holy Spirit. I want you to continually be amazed by Jesus and transformed by Jesus. I want you to read your Bible. But at the end, what I want is for you to see Jesus and to love Jesus. How many of you have heard this? That the God of the Old Testament is different than the God of the New Testament. The Old Testament is about Jesus. The New Testament is about Jesus. Jesus shows up in person in the New Testament, but he shows up all throughout the Old Testament. In Genesis 18, there's a guy named Abraham. Somebody shows up and goes out on a walk with him. That's Jesus. It's the Lord himself coming to Abraham. In Genesis 32, there's a guy named Jacob. Somebody comes down and wrestles with him all night. That's Jesus. In Exodus 3, there's a bush that's burning and a voice speaking from it to Moses. Moses asks, who should I say sent me? Because it's not going to go well if I say, well, the bush sent me. The foliage has spoken. The voice says, tell them, I am has sent you. And Jesus shows up. By the way, that's God speaking from the bush. And Jesus shows up in the New Testament and he says, before Abraham was, I am. What about the story in Daniel chapter 3? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in a fiery furnace, but they don't die because there is a fourth person in the furnace with them. Who's that? Jesus. Or how about this one? Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah says, I see the Lord high and exalted, seated in glory, seated on a throne. The hem of his robe fills the temple. And the angels that surround him are crying out day and night, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. Earth is full of his glory. You're going to see this a little later in John chapter 12. Here's what John has to say about that. Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. 700 years before Jesus walked the earth, Isaiah prophesied. And John in his gospel is saying, here's what Isaiah saw. 700 years prior. He saw Jesus and spoke about him. Jesus shows up repeatedly in the Old Testament. He also fulfills all of the Old Testament roles of the leaders. You'll read about priests. Priests are the people who mediate between a holy God and an unholy people. That's all pointing to Jesus who is coming as our great high priest. You're going to hear prophets speak with, with boldness, proclaiming the word of God. And Jesus comes to fulfill that ministry. He is the prophet of God. He is the word of God. You're going to see kings ruling over kingdoms. And that's to remind us that all kings and kingdoms will come to an end because the king of kings will bring the kingdom of God. His name is Jesus. 
As you read the Bible, you'll see shepherds who care for their sheep. That's to remind us that Jesus was the good shepherd. He laid down his life for us. You're going to see judges who are seated in authority who are rendering verdicts on innocence and guilt. All of that is to remind us of what Jesus said to us. We saw this last week in the verses just preceding this. That the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son, because Jesus judges the living and the dead. In addition, as you read the Old Testament, you'll see a lot of mention about, about sacrifices. That an animal is brought in, and though it is without guilt, it is a substitute. Its life is taken so that the sinner can be forgiven. All of this is pointing to Jesus about whom John the Baptist told his followers, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is the fulfillment, the ultimate sacrifice. He is the fulfillment of the entire sacrificial system. My point is this. As you read the Bible, look for Jesus. It's for you, but it's about him. It's not just about what you should do. You look in here, okay, this is what I should do. It's about what he must do for you. It's not just about first telling you who you are. It's telling you who he is so that you can find who you are in relation to him. Those religious leaders come to Jesus and they have a debate. And he says, you've read the whole Bible. And you've missed the entire point. The whole Bible is about Jesus from beginning to end. It's all about Jesus. And it all comes together when you know Jesus. It all comes together when you see Jesus. It all makes sense when you love Jesus. The problem these people are having is that they're quote unquote biblical, but they're not relational. They know a lot of Bible, but they don't know Jesus. So really, they don't know the Bible at all. And, and by the way, if you need a Bible, we give them away for free. You know, sometimes we get so familiar with amazing things that we forget how amazing they really are. That God loves you. That God wants to talk to you. God wants a relationship with you. That he writes a whole book so that you get to know his son, Jesus And just when you thought we were done, there's one more witness, unless I find more. You had time change. Come on. I know we're tired. We're ready to go. <laughs> Last witness, Moses. First five books of the Old Testament written by Moses. In them, 613 laws. That's a lot. You fail to do just one, you're a sinner. There's no hope for you apart from Jesus. That's why we love him so much because he fulfills the law. He's perfect, not us. These people thought, look, we're good. We're gonna die and stand before Moses. And Moses is gonna roll out this scroll of 613 laws and he's gonna start checking off all the ones that we did. Here's what Jesus says. But do not think I will accuse you before the Father. Your accuser is Moses on whom your hopes are set. Jesus is saying, Moses is not your defender. He's your prosecuting attorney. You're going to die. 
and you're going to expect him to say, I nailed it. He's going to say, no, you nailed him. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But since you do not believe what he wrote, how are you going to believe what I say? Good people don't go to heaven. People who are with Jesus go to heaven. Because nobody's good, only Jesus is. Jesus is saying, don't think you're going to stand before God and based on all that you've done, you're going to get a standing ovation. None of us will stand before God and say, here's the life I've lived, where's my parade? You stand before God and the word of God will reveal your every sin and if you don't belong to Jesus, you will suffer forever. But if you do belong to Jesus... His perfection is your perfection. His death is your forgiveness. And he will have a relationship with you that never ends. I'll close with this. Here are five witnesses Jesus brings forth to testify about who he is and what he does. For those of us who are Christians, your life is to be a testimony. You are to be a witness as well. If you drove here with someone, talk about this on your way home. Ask, what witness would you give for who Jesus is to you? What witness would you give for what Jesus has done? What witness would you give? Who would I be? What would we be without Jesus? That's a scary thought for me. I know that apart from Jesus, I would be just like those religious leaders. I would have been critical, domineering, overbearing toward my wife and children. That's who I would have been. I would have parented my kids the way that these critics approached Jesus to beat them down, not build them up. My kids wouldn't be here at this church with their kids and I don't require that to have a relationship with me. But they want to be. I wouldn't be doing lunch with an intact family and a loving wife. I would have wrecked all of that. And Jesus saves. And Jesus saves from Satan, sin, death, hell, the wrath of God, and Jesus saves me from me. And Jesus can save you from you. We hope you enjoyed the message. You can connect with us on Instagram, Facebook, our website, bhprez.org, and subscribe to our YouTube channel to stay up to date on all our latest content.